We are in chapter 7, verse 24, and we're wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. And we've had some therefores along our journey in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is teaching. He says, so just taught this. So therefore, this is what it means. The application, we always say that therefore, what's it there for? It's summarizing thoughts that previously happened in the text in front of that. And as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, we know that Jesus addressed a multitude. The people were astonished. We'll see that tonight. But he was speaking to his disciples. And again, the context with all red letters, except for this last verse, verse 28, we'll get to in a moment, is Jesus speaking if you have a red letter Bible. He's teaching his disciples. So it's not a message for the world. It's not a message for politicians or your boss that's not a Christian or your workers that aren't Christians. It's a message for people who say Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior. Now, if that's not you tonight, you're welcome to come and give your life to Christ. And if you study the whole Sermon on the Mount, you'd understand why that's like an awesome thing. It's, it's eternal life. It's abundant life. It's the resurrected life that Jesus offers us. But the context is for disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, those who say Jesus Christ is Lord. And so as we come to verse 24, we've had the warnings about, we've had the exhortation of the truth that it's a narrow gate to be saved through faith in Jesus alone. He's exclusive, the only Savior, but he's inclusive because he'll by no means cast out the one who comes to him. And then he warned about false teachers. And the Bible all over warns about false Jesuses in the last days where people have Jesus in their mind that's not Jesus of the Bible, the eternal Son of God. And so the warning about false prophets and false teachers, Jesus gave that warning. And then the exhortation that not everyone is going to say Jesus is Lord, Lord in heaven is going to be admitted into heaven because many people say they love Jesus or they serve Jesus, but he's not really Lord of their life because they don't do his will in their life. And tonight as we come to verse 24, it's coming forward with a summary from that thought. So we literally left off at verse 23 last week saying, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Or literally, you who refuse to be governed by God's law and by his word. That's the truest context of what that word lawless means in the Greek. The lawlessness. So after all of this, after the whole Sermon on the Mount and that last warning about standing before him, and not being ready for that day, he says this, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him, I would liken him, or we can say as well her, them, to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But whoever hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes, the religious leaders who actually would reject Jesus as Lord and Savior. You'll notice in verse 24, it says, these sayings. So you have the therefore and then these sayings. And these sayings, which is the content of the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, are also addressed in verse 28. It says, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished. This message, the Sermon on the Mount, there's nothing ever taught like this before or since. Now we have the amazing teaching of Moses with the law, giving of the law, and then the Deuteronomy of the second giving of the law, the expounding of that law. And we have some other amazing teachings in the Bible where things happen, 
But there's nothing like Jesus, who is the word of God in flesh, revealing the heart of the Father and the kingdom life. This is the kingdom life. This is the constitution for being a follower of Jesus Christ. Since Jesus came, preached it, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave for our hope and justification, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's coming again in glory. This is our constitution. People can vote on changing constitutions in different countries. Last year, the Chileans voted on a new constitution from a previous one from 30 years prior. Human governments can do that, but you can't do that with Jesus Christ. His constitution is his constitution. And what it means to be a disciple is never going to change. It's here for us in the living word of God, the scriptures with the Sermon on the Mount. So these sayings, these sayings of mine, he says, these sayings of mine, are forever there for us to guide us in the Christian life as disciples of Jesus Christ. All the generations in motion, from the first generation of the book of Acts to this generation right now, all these generations in motion that have come before us, and here we are, the Sermon on the Mount never changes as a constitution for personal guidelines in life choices in how to live our life as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And this is the grand finale. Like It's like a, you know, a fireworks show like Fourth of July in Huntington Beach, that last fireworks, it all goes like this, and that's what's happening here. It's the therefore, or like today, the Blue Angels, right? The last thing's like, there it is. It's the final thing. It's the big boom. It's the big, there it is. This is what life is meant to be for the disciple of Jesus Christ, for all generations, regardless of what's happening outside the doors of their church, ethnically, socially, culturally, or generationally. So as we consider this, we have... This It says that the person, the woman, the man, the wise woman, the wise man who builds their house on the rock represents the person who does the sayings. So we need to go back to this idea that the rock, now we know the Bible says that God is a rock. He is our rock. In the Old Testament, we're told time and time again, there's no rock like our rock for our God is a rock. God even says that of himself. And then we get that in the Psalms. We get that through the prophet Isaiah. And it's there in the scriptures. But really, in this case, the rock is not a capital R. Even though God is our rock, this rock is not a capital R as of a person who's that rock. Or Jesus, the chief cornerstone, capital C for chief cornerstone. It's not the case here. The rock is representative of disciples of Jesus Christ who hear these sayings and do them. That's what the rock is. So... The analogy Jesus uses is that we're, we're all building a house. We're all building a house. And again, the context is disciples. So all people who are confessing Jesus Christ are building a house, which is their life. They're building their house. And if they are doing what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, they're building their house on the rock, a firm foundation. If they're building their house, if they're not doing what Jesus Christ teaches, but they're saying they're Christians... And there's a lot of people like that. They're building their house on the sand. My mom's house in Vista, her old house that she lived in for many years, 642 Cortez Avenue, Vista, California, 92084. She was the first owner of that house. Top of a hill. She had the panoramic view of the mountain range. She faced north, uh, Camp Pendleton Range. And then you could see San Jacinto. And then Mount San Jacinto. You'd also see Mount Gorgonio. And then you would even see Palomar Mountain with the snow. She had a three-fourths incredible Vista. It's view, right? Vista. It's view. The most amazing thing about her house on that, that lot on top of the hill, it's a rock. Like, if you've ever been to Vista, there's like a lot of big rocks. 
My mom's house is literally built on a giant rock. And she had that back porch with the mountain view. But it was just a rock. The soil's rock. That's what it was. Literally, my mom's house in Vista was a house on a rock. And you could go underneath the deck and underneath the house. And that kind of area where you crawl around, just rock, like boulder, rock. Built on a rock. We never worried about the big one happening at her house because she's built on the rock. Her house is on the rock. But I can contrast that, having lived on the East Coast during hurricanes, Virginia, and having been back in Florida during hurricanes. You know, those East Coast houses on the beach a lot of times, particularly in the Outer Banks, they put those things up on the stilts, right? And they're built on sand. And Cape Hatteras, the Outer Banks, gets hit every year by tropical storms and hurricanes. And it never ceases to amaze me how people put, the new, put that house, they build it up on sand, and here comes category one, category two, even a tropical storm. And they just they get washed away. And I've been following surfers on Instagram for almost 10 years who live in the Outer Banks. And whenever the houses start going, they'll post it like, here you go again. And they built, you know, all these houses in this part of the Outer Banks just got wiped out by the hurricane, the storm surge. And they're built on the sand, and they wash away. So for me, when I read this, I had the visual of my mom's house in Vista built on a rock, and these houses in the Outer Bank, they get washed away at a plus high tide with a storm surge during a hurricane in a part of the country that gets a lot of hurricanes and tropical storms. The analogy of the rock or the sand, and using my mom's house on a, on a hill there in Vista on the rock, or these houses they built in, in the Outer Banks, These are visuals that Jesus would give us. Maybe you have a house on a rock you can picture. Maybe it's your house. Huntington Beach, if you live in Huntington Beach, is probably on sand, just so you know, and and an anthill. But all that to say that you probably have a visual of what a house on a rock looks like and maybe a house built on sand. Jesus gives these visuals to help us understand the difference between obedience and disobedience and how it plays out in our life to his word. So these sayings of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, the doing is everything. Because he said in verse 24, because we want to be the house on the rock. Our life is the house. The rock is obedience to God's word. Our life is the house. The sand is disobedience to God's word. That's the clear analogy that Jesus gives here. And each of us are building a house. You know, in pro surfing, they use the term they're building their house. When you compete in pro surfing, you watch the conditions, you paddle out, you're looking for this wave, how to get a good score, then you get your second score, your top two count, and then you're trying to get a third score that's better than one of the first two. And we say in pro surfing, hey, you got to get busy and you got to build your house. And every heat in competition in surfing, the commentators, Olympics, world tour events are like, hey, he's got, she's got to get busy, start building her house. So as you start to get the scores, you're building your house. And in our lives, we are all building our house one way or another, particularly contextually, as disciples of Jesus Christ. Either we're building through obedience on the rock or just whatever we want to do, still claiming Jesus Lord on the sand. So the first thing we really see in this context concerning these sayings is whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. So a lot of people hear the word of God. But this is the doing. The book of James, as I've mentioned even recently, is the first book written in the early church timeline chronologically from the day of Pentecost. And so much of it is about being obedient. And it talks about the person who hears the word like looking in a mirror and walks away and forgets. They don't do the word like a person looks in the mirror and walks away and forgets what they even saw in the mirror. 
They forget it that fast. Pastor Chuck years ago said something. I only heard him say it once, but it really stood out with me. Pastor Chuck at Calvary Coast to Mesa back in the day before he went to be with the Lord. He said how Jesus on the parable of the soils, that the sower is the messenger and the seed is the word of God. And there are the four soils. The one, the seed gets plucked up right away. That bird represents the devil. It just never took root. But the second and the third and the fourth all would seem to be people who confess to know Jesus. Because the first one, it says it didn't take root, but they rejoiced for a while. They rejoiced for a while in the gospel and saying Jesus is the Lord. But they had no root. So when persecution and tribulation came, they wilted like the sun, like a, like a weed with no root. The second one was the cares of this life. So it was growing, but thorns choked it out, and that represented the cares of this life, and that didn't produce any crop either. It looked like a crop, but there was no crop. But the, th- the fourth one of these four, or the third that would seem to be a believer, or someone who says they're a believer, that one produces 30, 60, 100-fold. And Pastor Chuck said something that resonated to me as someone who's taught thousands of Bible studies over the last 30 years. He said that if 25% of the people you're teaching are hearing what you're teaching, you're, you're doing good in the odds of the parable of the soils. And he actually said that those who teach the Bible shouldn't presume, just because you know what you're saying, like me right now, contextually teaching the Word of God, that all of you are understanding it. Vernon McGee used to say the hardest people to convert are the people in your church. The famous minister Vernon McGee. And so the idea is that like, one of those three hears the Word of God, but they have no root in it. It doesn't mean anything to them. And once it's not cool and groovy to be Jesus or socially unacceptable, they check out. The other one, they're too concerned with the cares of this life. Like, how am I going to pay my bills? I got this business plan. I got this model. I'm just going to do it my way and ask God to bless it. There's lots of books that say do it your way and then ask God's blessing upon it. That's that person. But then the last one is simply to receive, do it, and obey like this. And it's, it's a big crop. As a side note, when Pastor Chuck actually taught that more than 20 years ago when I heard it, I thought what you really want to do in ministry, it's almost like if you're a stock market investor. You want to recognize which stocks are performing well. And that's where you tend to invest. Well, in the same sense, Jesus focused on 12 and specifically 3 and 70. Jesus had his 3, his 12, his 70. And everyone else is a multitude. And someone gets a special thing from him out of a multitude. And you realize discipleship making, you can pastor a church of tens of thousands like a Rick Warren or Pastor Chuck did or you know, anyone like that, big, big church of any sort like that, Chuck Swindoll and the EV Free Church he did for years, you can do that. Or David Hawking and Calvary Church Tustin, you can do that. But in the end, it really comes down to making disciples and, and people bearing good fruit. All that Jesus did, he came back to 12 on the last night, minus one, Jesus the betrayer. Then, then there in the garden, the three close to him. And as we said, the closer you get to Jesus on the cross, the less people are there. So at the time Jesus on the cross, the only disciple by Jesus on the cross is John. So it's really important that we're doers of the word. So we're the people closest to the cross. We're with Jesus in a multitude of 5,000. We're with Jesus when he sends out 70. We're with Jesus when he picks 12 for the upper room. We're with Jesus when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're with Jesus right next to him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's weeping great drops of blood in his tears. And we're next to Jesus at the cross. That's who we want to be. That's the doer we want to be. We want to hear God's word in this text, Jesus teaching his words, and look in the mirror and go like, wow, that's great, and walk away and not do that when we go to work and not do that in our society, not do that with our family and not do that with our friends. We don't want to be that person. 
We want to be the person that presses into those things and these things we've been studying for the last three months and fulfill them faithfully as we know that by, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And God has given us all things as he works and wills in us for his good pleasure, all things pertaining to this life and godliness. So we can do these things. See, the Sermon on the Mount, for someone that's not born again, it's like, how can you do this? You can't. But we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So when we are a disciple and we're willing to obey the Lord, he'll help us do that. He'll help us do the right things. He will help us to obey. He will help us to make the right decisions in difficult times. And you older people can all recall a time when you could have made a right decision or a wrong one, and you made the wrong one, and you knew you were making the wrong one with the Lord. And there's times you knew you made the right one, and you had the blessings of that, and you reap the consequences of the wrong one. But the Spirit's there to help us, to convict us and guide us and lead us and instruct us in all things concerning Christ. So we have the doing, but we do have the equipping by the Holy Spirit for the true disciple of Jesus Christ, because we're born from above, and it's not in our flesh that we do this. It's by the Spirit who God gives us when we receive Christ as Lord and Savior. So the doing is the critical element of all this, is the doing. Is the doing. We hear, but we do. And Jesus Well, James said in the book of James as well that as the body without the spirit is dead, so is faith without works. The works of faith, not the works of the flesh. We don't confuse those two. The works of faith. And he says, show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. I'll show you my faith by the actions of my life, living out discipleship of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's what we want to do. So Jesus makes it very clear that the key element in all that we've studied for these 12 weeks is not the hearing of these sayings, but the doing. So as we think about the doing, let's just, let's just talk a, a little bit about a couple of these things that we saw here. So here in the doing, we saw the attitude from the Beatitudes. The Beatitude is all about attitude. Humility, brokenness before the Lord, hungry and thirsting for righteousness, the things of God, being merciful with other people, seeking to have a pure heart, trying to bring peace as opposed to conflict and and persevering through persecution for Christ's name and for his righteousness' sake. So the attitude of doing, because the beatitude is an attitude. It literally is attitude, like the right perspective, the right disposition in our psyche of our inner woman, our inner man, how we approach the day, that we approach it with humility and brokenness and the eternal perspective and just hungering after righteousness, the things of God, and truly, sincerely want to do the right things. That's the attitude. It's not actions, but the attitude precedes the actions. So the beatitude, as we think about the doing of the Sermon on the Mount, is the attitude is everything. Then we also saw when Jesus talked about how he fulfills the law, that God's word is there to instruct us. He warned about breaking his law or teaching others not to value his law, his totality of his word. This is a problem for all the liberal churches that don't believe the entirety of Scripture or don't believe it applies to all matters of the human experience. They teach contrary to God's law, and they stumble people at it, and there's a great accountability for them. So we have the right attitude and realize that, yes, Christ fulfills the law for our righteousness, but, yes, we know that by God's Spirit, there's a lot about obeying Jesus and his commandments in the New Testament. And while his law is summarized in loving the Lord and loving our neighbor as ourself, the Ten Commandments particularly, the the totality of Scripture is there from Genesis to Revelation to guide and govern the church. They certainly saw it that way 
in the book of Acts, and that's certainly the history of the church that's been fruitful. So we're saved by grace, but the doing of God's, the doing of the Sermon on the Mount is esteeming God's law like we did two years going from Genesis to Deuteronomy and realizing, realizing, though it doesn't save us, it does instruct us in clear right and wrong, morally, socially, and religiously pointing to all the things Christ would do in his coming. We also saw in the Sermon on the Mount that the, the heart is everything, that murder begins in the heart, adultery begins in the heart, that marriage is sacred and binding however it can be for our lives, wherever we're at. That our yes needs to be yes, our no needs to be no, and we need to be thinking of other people. Go the second mile, love your enemies. It's like proactively thinking of other people. That's how you really know someone's been touched by the grace of God. They actually think of other people. The orbit of the universe isn't them being the gravitational pull that everyone revolves around them, but they begin to think of other people, and they care about other people. They ask how other people are doing. They follow up with them, and they just get a bigger vision. There's nothing that's more of a paradoxical misnomer than someone saying they that they, they love Jesus and they're serving Jesus when everything is about them. Like, it just doesn't, it doesn't go together. That's why the Gil Irwin sticker from years ago was so good. It just said, others. That's all it said, others. And that's when you can tell we're growing in the faith and we're obeying and we're doing the Sermon on the Mount is that we do think of others. We also saw in the Sermon on the Mount that it's not about a religious show. Obviously, that was chapter 6, the first part. But it's about, again, the heart, who we are in private with the Lord. If we're right with the Lord privately, then it's going to show itself publicly. But if we're just doing religious things to be seen, that's not what it's about. It's not going to work. We also saw that doing in the Sermon on the Mount is having faith. Faith itself is a doing, like exercising faith. Have faith. Keep believing. Keep trusting in the Lord. Having faith in Jesus having faith in his character, having faith in his promises, and knowing that he does good, is good, is going to always bring about good. So faith is critical. So we know that we have the eternal perspective of storing up our treasures in heaven. We know that you can't live for the world and live for Jesus. We can live for Jesus in the world, but the other one's not going to work. And that we can trust him. So if we seek first his kingdom, that personal prayer life and that relationship with Christ is getting stronger by the priority of it, that we're going to trust him, that, that we know he takes care of the birds and the lilies and the God of a trillion galaxies knows the hairs on our head and shed his blood for us, each one of us here individually, and we can trust him. And all things really do work together for good to those who love him, and we know that we can trust him. So we understand in the Sermon on the Mount how important faith is to live by faith, to stand in faith, and to take steps of faith. And then finally, we saw in chapter 7 the danger of being condemning of others, then balanced with the necessity of discerning others. That was quite interesting, right? Like, you can't just write people off, but you need to discern them, right? That's what we saw. And that's, that required, that's why Jesus said being wise as serpents and gentle as doves. It, it requires wisdom. We don't like to think about false teachers and false prophets, but they're there. And we know in the last days there'll be many of them. So doing God, doing what doing the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is recognizing false teaching and steering clear of it. So that's the doing. That's the review of the doing. When he says, Therefore, these sayings you hear, but you do. This is the doing, because this is what he taught us to do. And we're not left alone. We can ask him for his help and guidance 
as we try and navigate different things in our personal life. And God will guide us, and he'll lead us by his spirit. So we want to be doing the faith, the works of faith, the attitude, the heart, the faith, the action, discernment, all of it, the life of truth. And of course, in in all that, it's obedience to the Lord, and it's a heart for other people. Love your enemies, all that. That's our doing. That's our constitution. That's our responsibility. Yeah, it's not saving us to get to heaven. It's showing that we've been transferred to heaven positionally through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's the actions that someone going to heaven would, would demonstrate. And in all the confusion that's going on around us, one thing that's always going to be in, it's going to always be in to love God and love your neighbor. And if your motive is truly for loving God and, and, and loving other people, God's going to always honor that. Because you look at the heart. So you have faith, you love God, you love people, you make the best decisions you can based upon loving God and loving people, God's going to honor that. And God's going to guide us in that in our personal walks and personal relationships. And he's going to lead us and he's going to guide us. So the rock of obedience is the rock. So now we see that the sure foundation of the rock. So it says here in verse 25 that the person, the individual, they build their house on the rock. It says, the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house. And it didn't fall, for it was founded on the rock. So here's something we know about life. And you younger people, listen to me carefully. I can guarantee you the longer you live, there's going to be heavy rain, floods, uh, high winds, and a beatdown. That's what life's going to bring you. As Jacob said, few and evil have been my days of my life. And Pharaoh's like, really? Like, Yeah. And Jacob had a great life, but he had all kinds of things that went on. And we, knew, we know that as a disciple of Jesus Christ, we're told through many tribulations, we must inherit the kingdom of God. We're told, enter by the narrow gate, and it's difficult. But wide and broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many go thereby. We already saw that. So we just know how it says in the New Testament that it rains on the just and the unjust. So no matter what, to get to 80 years, there's going to be all kinds of, I got to show you at the memorial on Tuesday, testing, trials tribulations, and tragedy. You cannot get to 80 and live the human experience, especially with some remnant of how God designed it, where we're interdependent with other people, and we're community-oriented, and we're part of a tribe. People die. People die younger than you. People die beside you. People die older than you. People you love die, and they step into eternity, and they're not coming back. I'm still just thinking about my neighbor, Todd, whose memorial we did here Tuesday. I just can't believe that when I walk by his house, Every day walking my dogs, that Todd's not there. He stepped into eternity at age 50. He's not there. His dog's still there. It's just, that's the way it works, and you understand that. Testings, trials, tribulations, tragedy. It's going to rain. It's going to flood. It's going to get windy, and there's going to be a beat down. Those are the four things it says, and that's Jesus saying it. This profound weather examples, and it really is so symbolic, because in the analogy he's using, it is symbolic of the difficulties of life, and life happens. You don't feel good, and you finally go to the doctor because your wife tells you to, and then suddenly, you know, it's like, ah, you feel worse, and then all of a sudden, like, you go to see the doctor, and he's like, he mentions the word cancer, you're like, cancer, and you go from thinking, my husband or my wife doesn't feel good to cancer, well, there's hope. We're going to get this early, and you feel like maybe it's not so bad. But then you, you, you try this radiation treatment, you try this sort of chemo, and, and it's not getting better. 
And suddenly you go from thinking like, wow, my spouse wasn't feeling good to, wow, my spouse is seriously sick to, wow, my spouse is terminal. And it can happen like that. When my wife's stepmom got pancreatic cancer, it happened so fast. We were at Timmy's graduation at Cal Maritime, the best experience I ever remember with Joanne. And up in San Francisco, and it was this wonderful evening, she was cheerful and happy and all this stuff. And then a few weeks later, we hear she has pancreatic cancer. And I didn't see her for three months, and I saw her the day before she died. When my wife and I went to visit, and God sent us there, and Jennifer prayed over her, and the Holy Spirit filled the room, and whatever is between her and the Lord has already happened in eternity. It just happened so fast. And I'm still thinking, like, oh, Bill's gone. My father-in-law, who I love, it's been a year. And I'm like, his birthday just happened. I was like, man, it's like, just like, it rains. And the greatest rain is the loss of loved ones who leave this planet. Loved ones who are young, that was a future you're going to enjoy with them. Loved ones that are older, that you enjoyed a lifetime of memories with. And loved ones that you're hoping to spend the rest of your life with, and, and they're not there. You know, speaking with Heather the other day, when she came by our house, she loved Todd, and she was going to marry him. They were high school friends. And after 30 years and all these journeys they've been on, and then he got sick and he died. And they had all these dreams. That's a downpour. That's a flood. That's a wind. And that's a beatdown. And yet we understand that Christ is greater than all that. So here, this rock, which is our faith of obedience, the doing of our faith. So when we live a life, and you young people listen closely, because Solomon said, seek the Lord in your youth before the days grow old and evil and you take no pleasure in him. So you build your house on the rock of obedience and you make good decisions and you be just succession of good decisions, good decisions of obedience. You have the Beatitudes. You know, you're not perfect. As my sister Barbie says, you know, not perfection, but improvement. You're getting better. And it, progress, not perfection. And you're growing. And people can look at your life and say, this is a different version, a better version of this person than last year or five years ago. That transformation's happening. And you're, you're doing the best you can. And you're going through this journey where, where things happen. And so when, when you're walking in obedience and the difficult day comes, you're not, you're not like scram, like you're not, well, as it is, even when you obey the Lord, you can often be plagued by guilt. Is this my fault? Is this my fault because we did this or we did that? Is this God punishing me? That's a natural human response because none of us is perfect. So if you want to find something that feel like it's your fault, that something bad has happened to someone you love, and you feel like it's your fault, the devil will help you come to that place. But faith is saved by grace through faith, positional righteousness. So you can't be moved from that. But when you live a life of obedience and the difficult day happens, that life of obedience is a rock. When your life is a pattern of obedience and obeying the Lord, and the vast majority of good decisions obeying the Lord as opposed to bad decisions not, and it's a real faith, it's a sincere faith, a genuine faith, as Peter says in 1 Peter, then when that day comes or those days or that season you're on a good foundation. You can handle the flood. You can handle the, the rain and the wind. And you can even handle the beat down. As bad as the bad day is, it's worse when you're not walking with the Lord, obeying him. As painful as death is, and it's knife to the gut, it's even more painful when you don't have Jesus in between you and it. When you deal with heartache and grief, you want to put Jesus right there between you and it. 
because he'll see you through it. And when you're going through the ultimate, you want to put Jesus there between you and it. The long, arduous trial that never seems to end with these people, this situation, this legal thing or that thing, you want to put Jesus right there. And that Jesus, Jesus being there, positioning by faith is one thing, but Jesus being there with you walking in obedience, it makes it easier to bless. We just spent two years in the law. When you make good decisions, there's blessings. When you make bad decisions, it's not as blessed. David himself said that when he was unrepented of his sins, that his bones were rotting within him. And he was actually relieved when Nathan came and confronted him for his sin so he could turn from that and begin to heal. But again, think how David felt guilty for all that happened with his children after the fact when they're all adults. A life of obedience gives us strength and a safe haven and a rock foundation for the difficult day. Think of Job. The book of Job chapter 1 tells us that Job was a just and upright man. It tells us by the Holy Spirit that he was a good man. Not a perfect man, but a good man. And then one day, he lost his family and all of his wealth. His family and all of his wealth. So he lost all the people he loved and all the security he had for his future. He lost his financial future and the people he's going to share it with, except his wife, who told him to curse God and die. Yet in all that, like he said to his wife, we've accepted blessings from the Lord. Shall we not accept adversity as well? He saw that the rain, the flood, the wind, and the beatdown was an opportunity for his life to, for him to show his faith in the Lord. And though he wrestled with questioning God and maybe even accusing God, which is very common and not that surprising, in the end, he accepted his reproof from God and God gave him what? A double blessing. And we're told in the New Testament book of James again that Job is an example to us, the end of good that the Lord intends from the rain, the flood, the wind, and the beatdown. But again, if we're actually walking in obedience, we're in the place where we're in agreement with God and things are working favorably and we're growing on the difficult day and we're pressing into the Lord on the difficult day and we're not blaming God or walking away from God. You know, in ministry for 33 years, I've seen a lot of people who confess Christ totally walk away from the Lord on the bad day, wind, rain, so even a light rain in some cases. They just walk away. It's like that parable of the soil, right? The, the, no, the no root. Now, I've seen people walk away in a difficult day, but walking away is never the right option. We're not to walk away from the Lord on the difficult day. We're depressing all that much more. So we want to be found in an obedient life on the bad day, the difficult day, and we want to be found going forward from the bad day and the bad season with obedience. Job did say, when I've gone through all this, I'll come forth like pure gold. He saw everything that he was going through as the heat bringing out the dross from his life. And that's really what trials and tribulations and tragedies are meant to do in the life of a believer, to just bring out dross of the temporal and the fleshly and make us more pure for the eternal and the spiritual. That's what it's meant to do. And we find out what we're made of. More than once, I've not been happy at all with how I've handled testings, trials, tribulations, and tragedies. Some of them I feel like, I did all right on that one. Others just like, I just didn't handle that well at all. You find out a lot. And the more you're walking in obedience, when the storms come, the better it's going to be. When they find you, 
And if they find you disobedient, then make it right right there and go forward in obedience because that'll bring the healing that much quicker and the lessons that can be learned. The only thing worse than a beatdown is walking away from the Lord in a beatdown or not allowing the Lord to be Jesus and Lord over that beatdown. Because now you're in your own little universe, a speck of dust in a universe of trillions of galaxies that you're your own God. We want to trust in the Lord. We want to obey the Lord and do those things. And we want our life to be built on the rock of obedience so the blessings are there when the storms comes and we stand. Because the third thing we see is the foolish man or the foolish woman. Like that, those houses in the Outer Banks when the hurricanes come, washed away, built on sand. And this, Jesus calls, he says to this person, everyone who hears these sayings, verse 26, and does not do them. Okay, that's just disobedience to God's word. You know when most people disobey God's word that are Christians, they don't say I'm disobeying God's word. They say things like, well, God loves me. God wants me to be happy. His thoughts for me are good thoughts of future and hope. You know how many times I've heard people quote Jeremiah 29, 11 out of context when they're living in disobedience and sin? More than you want to know. Oh, no, I read a book. You know, God's thoughts are good thoughts for me. And, you know, you're... you're, what you're doing is so obviously contrary to the word of God and you're, you're going to church and you're calling yourself a disciple, but God wants me happy. And you can't, like, those are, t- in those situations, it's amazing how people become so hardened and self-justified. And you think like, are we even having this conversation right now? Like, you are living with your boyfriend, you're pregnant, and you're involved in ministry, and you're saying God wants you happy, and this makes you happy, and you really think you're right with Jesus on this. Yes, because God wants me happy. His thoughts for me are future and hope. Now, not everyone says that, but a lot of people think like that when they do that. It's just amazing how fast it goes that way. That person is building their house on sand because it's disobedience, and again, the context is followers of Christ. Hearers, but not doers. Confessors, but like dead bodies without the spirit from the book of James. And they build their house on the sand. They say, Jesus is Lord. The Jesus thing works for them as long as it, it's built around them and Jesus is their rabbit foot in their back pocket or Jesus is their whatever he is. But he's not Lord. Because as Billy Graham would always say, Jesus Christ is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And Lord means Lord. And that's not easy for me. It's not easy for you. So we're quite transparent about that one. It's not. So a lot of times I wish I was Lord of me. But, you know, when I was Lord of me, I kind of wrecked my life and ended up in a straitjacket. So it's just as well I'm not Lord of me and that Jesus is Lord of me. It's better for you. It's better for my wife. It's better for my kids, my grandkids, and pretty much planet Earth that I'm not Lord of Joey, but Jesus is Lord of Joey. It makes the world a better place. And Jesus being Lord of your life makes the world a better place for you personally, the benefits on you and for those around you. We don't want to build our house on the sand. It, it's, it's people that have head knowledge, that can quote scripture out of context. It's chicken soup for your soul. It's just soft and shallow. There's no depth. It's just a self-serving faith and religion. I want to be careful that's not us. There's not faith involved. There's not steps of faith. There's not sacrifices. We're told in 1 Peter that we offer spiritual sacrifices. 
And quite often, you know, I've mentioned the Elizabeth Elliot book. Well, she wrote a great book on sorrow because, you know, she lost two husbands under different circumstances. Um, and she had great insight on sorrow. But she, and a really good book on loneliness. They're both still in my library, which means something because I don't have a big library. And I can't remember if it's a book on sorrow or loneliness, but she said that you have to make all those sacrifices of loved ones leaving and things you let go of, you have to make those offerings to the Lord. Your loneliness needs to be an offering to the Lord. That person in eternity needs to be an offering to the Lord. You need to let them go and make that your act of faith in giving them to the Lord. I've said this, but not for a while. When Jennifer and I lost our first son, Jesse, very early on, the Lord said to me, I've taken your son, but now I want you to give me your son. You need to give me your son. And I did. You know, it says in Exodus that whatever opens a womb belongs to the Lord. That's where I was at. The firstborn always belonged to the Lord. And there's a lot more to the story, but it's not for here and now. But the Lord's like, he spoke to my heart. I've taken your son. Now I'm asking you to give me your son. And I did. And so did Jennifer. We need to live by faith. When we're built on the rock, we're living by faith. When we're built on the sand, there's no faith. We've got all the answers, all the plans, and it's just self-serving. That's not us. In fact, what does it say here? Great was that fall. The fall is great. None of us here want a great fall. I don't want a great fall. <laughs> when you look at people that fall in ministry, it's usually like they, they, they were not obeying. Like they, they didn't let God work. And not even just ministry, just people in general. Like, how could that happen? Well, if you come to figure it out, just, there was an obedience, and, and the fall followed. That's why it's so important that we let God work, we let him correct us, and we keep trying to go forward. It goes back to the very beginning of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. very first thing that Jesus taught on was humility. And you can have humility and build your house on the rock, or you can build on the sand and be humbled anyways, right? It's better to have the humility that we bring to the Lord. None of us here wants a great fall. It says in verse 28, closing thought here, so we, we have the rock of obedience. We have the sure foundation of the rock for our life when the storms come. And then we have the foolish man, foolish woman who just, it's just empty. There's no substance like a Hollywood set, nothing behind it. They're not growing. That's not us. But the last thing I do leave us with this, this evening is that when he ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teachings. You know, we want to be astonished and in awe of Jesus and his teachings. Not just his death on the cross and his burial and resurrection, Joseph our, Arimathea's tomb and his resurrection. We want to be astounded with all that, but we want to be astounded with his teaching. Jesus has the words of life. Jesus' words give us hope. They give us abundant life. They give us clarity of right and wrong, and we never get lost. They're a compass. And the people were astonished because not only are his words astonishing that no one even spoke like this, because this is God. This isn't a philosopher or religious leader. This is God. Jesus, the Son of God, Lord over all the universe of a trillion galaxies, in person, bringing everything to a head that started from the fall in the Garden of Eden, the dawn of creation, for all humanity to us this night, October 2nd, 2021, the Church of Jesus Christ. And he said, it said here that the people were astonished, but why were they ultimately astonished? Because he spoke as having authority. So I just remind us when we end the Sermon on the Mount tonight, 
Jesus is the final authority. All authority has been given to him in heaven and earth. Nothing's going to happen in our world that doesn't pass through his divine fingers to allow it for a purpose toward the end game. And even as he said, these things must take place. So we're reminded yet again that Jesus taught as one having authority because Jesus is the one in authority. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the final authority. The Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus is the final authority. I open a door that no man can close and I close a door that no man can open. Jesus is the final authority. So we're greatly encouraged. We have our constitution, we have our king, and we know he's over it all. Amen?